welcome to Avon Stories. I'm Sarah Connolly. As someone who makes podcasts, I obviously love the medium. And one of the ones I've been listening to both for research about the Avon and Bristol, but also for my own pleasure, because it's fantastic, is Tom Brothwell's Bristol History Podcast. Tom's covered an eclectic range of subjects, interviewing historians and authors to find out all sorts of different aspects of the city that I just didn't know about. And I was really excited to sit down with him to talk about why he podcasts, his approach to history, some of the history of the water in Bristol, and a lot more. I'll put links to all the things we talk about on my website, avonstories.com, including the specific Bristol history podcast we go into. But I really hope you enjoy this. So my name is Tom Brothwell, and I run the Bristol History Podcast. I am the creator, I'm the interviewer on it, and I run everything, really. I'm always talking about what we do, but it's, it's just me <laughs> to go behind the curtain. <laughs> For people who haven't heard it, can you just describe what the podcast is, please? It does what it says on the tin, really. Each week or each fortnight, which is when I try and get it out, we will tackle a different area of Bristol's history, and what I tend to do is go and speak to relevant experts or people that have a keen interest in some specific aspect of the city's history. And I try and use the podcast to open things out, to be broad. So I don't want to close off topics. I quite like any tangential relation to Bristol to be a potential area to talk about. So we've done a podcast on John Locke, for instance. John Locke was philosopher born in Rington in Somerset it's not exactly Bristol <laughs> but I'm not going to say no let's not do that <laughs> it's near enough near enough exactly there are some podcasts we've done on maybe some of the more obvious topics that relate to Bristol things like slavery or my first one was on the Clifton Suspension Bridge mm-hmm. I couldn't think of as that sort of icon of Bristol so that's what we do on a fortnightly basis as I say if I can manage it sometimes less frequently than that and it's been a really great way of going and meeting people around the city people who are either experts in it because it's their job or they're just interested amateurs Mm -hmm. and really from starting to do it a couple of years ago now I've found this amazing network of people who are interested interesting and generous generous with their time why did you start I suppose I started because I am Bristolian I was born in Bristol always lived outside of the city but I went to school in Bristol Then I went away to university in about 2006 and studied and then lived in Oxford for maybe eight years. A decent amount of time, met my girlfriend, now wife, was working there. And then it was in 2015 that we decided that we were going to move and we thought, well, where's a good place to go to? And we'd visited Bristol because my family is still in Bristol. But we came back to Bristol and for the first time, we live in in the city now and I was someone who was very interested I studied history at university and I did a a master's and an MPhil in Russian history specifically I spent some time living in Russia and I think for a while I was thinking well will this be my career you know academia I decided against it for a number of reasons not least because Russia is a cold place and <laughs> the, the idea of spending time solely sort of in archives and things is maybe one that doesn't appeal to me and also I think to be honest because I knew that if I had to do it for a profession it would sap the interest yeah. out of it I think that's true for me I'm interested in it so long as I can have the control over when I do it and what I do whereas as soon as I had to start writing things to real tight deadlines or 
you know, that is such a competitive world out there. I, anyway, I thought for a while that that might be what I wanted to go into. I'm still very interested in history. And I came to Bristol. I don't work in history. It's not my day job. So I was looking at something I could do, keep up my engagement in history beyond yeah. just reading books and sort of looking at bits here and there or going to talks or whatever. And the idea of a podcast struck me because, one, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I knew I could probably put one together. I knew it wouldn't be too hard. I'm also a musician in spare time and have a bit of a familiarity with GarageBand and those, yeah, yeah. those kind of software packages. So I, it wasn't a case of thinking, oh, how will I ever do that? <laughs> and then I just thought, well, give it a go. I thought that by arranging interviews with people and going to speak to them, it would be something I could do, that I really could commit to doing. Whereas I knew if doing something like a blog, say, I'd do a couple and then I'd stop because as long as it was all on me, there'd be other things that would get in the way. Whereas speaking to people, taking the time to go and meet them, to record and then to edit and put this stuff out there, I'm still not that good at doing it every fortnight, (laughs) but the framework is a useful one for me. Another reason behind it, the history I was interested in, in Russian history, quite interested in philosophy as well. I'm interested in history in this very broad sense, you know, how ideas change over time. You know, it's quite grand ideas and I think probably history of Russia was also tied into that you know the key movement of the 20th century maybe being communism Mm -hmm. and and probably I was a bit of a snob maybe when it came to local history right so I think that was there and I didn't know what it would be like I thought maybe sometimes you'd go and speak to people and it would be dull and I don't know, so parochial as to only be interesting to them. And I'll be honest, I I did have those worries or or thought that that might be the case. And it really hasn't happened because I think what I found is just an amazing wealth of sort of generosity of spirit and people's interest in what might at first look like very particular subjects. But actually, we create our own meaning with these things. And actually, people who put time into projects which you might not have heard about or that might not be known on a national scale, but when you look into them, actually, a good example is uh, Eastville Workhouse, Mm. the the work that the Bristol Radical History Group did there. This was, for those who don't know, there was a number of people who were living in the Victorian workhouse who died on site and were buried at this site in Rosemary Green in fish ponds. And it was all covered up and they discovered that these people had been buried. They essentially discovered this burial site, this mass grave. And the work that they did there was just this incredible outpouring of of humanity, really. There wasn't money involved. It was purely done through an interest and trying to uncover this story and tell a story which they felt was important to tell. And when you see that kind of passion and can speak to people who have that interest and engagement that's just as much of historical worth as I don't know some grand work about the progress of freedom over time or something like that do you see what I mean yeah 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 (laughs) or finding Richard III's body in a a, a car park in Leicester yeah one of the things I love about your approach to your podcast you've covered some really interesting topics for people who haven't seen Tom's podcast obviously there's things like lifting suspension bridges and Vikings and Brunel but you've also got 
two-part podcast looking at riots mm. or civil disturbance in Bristol. You've got something looking at the history of trip-hop music. You've got one obviously looking at slavery. I don't think you're shy about involving politics in the topics you're choosing. And I was really interested in the stories you want to tell. You know, you've got W.G. Grace, the cricketer. That can be a very nice Daily Mail type thing. And then you've got talking about the riots from a radical perspective or your thought piece on why we need to change the name of the course in the hall. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I suppose... When I started doing the podcast, I didn't really know what my approach would be. I think I thought that when I was talking about the subjects, I'd have some broad points that I wanted to get across. So this might be talking about the chronology of something or yeah. the dates. And I thought, oh, I'm fairly good at extemporising, I'll just talk. <laughs> and what I quickly discovered was that I would always be unhappy with those results. And actually what I do, certainly in the recorded bits in the podcast that aren't me talking in an interview with someone I write them because that's the way actually I often find that I have something to say that I want to get across mm -hmm. now that might just be explicating historical information going through what's happened and trying to give some context to stuff that happened in the past but I also think that with a podcast like this I want to be honest about what it is I'm not an expert I'm someone who's interested in in this stuff I think the podcast is stronger for being honest and for reflecting my personality and my thoughts. Yeah. So it's not that I have a, I don't know, a strong political agenda, say, but I think sometimes when you're talking about contentious issues, when you're talking about things like slavery, or when you're talking about, it doesn't even have to be contentious, to be honest. It's where you see something and you do have an opinion on it, and it's not then about, I don't know, sort of cherry-picking facts and sort of presenting it in this way. What I'll try and do is have that objectivity of explaining a topic, and then maybe it will hopefully be clear. I'll say, well, isn't it interesting that we think about this like this? Mainly I present these sort of thoughts in the form of musings, or it might be a bit of a, a provocation or, or something. I think with the renaming of the Colston Hall, I was trying to explore a few areas there. And then I just said what I thought about it. But it's not that I have a, a sort of dogmatic position on it. Yeah. And I think in as far as I give my opinions on these things, I'm hopefully in line with this kind of opening up. That's what I'm most interested in, is opening up historical debate. I am genuinely interested in history. And I, I also think I have a quite a strong historical perspective like my outlook on life is quite based on history if that doesn't sound too strange or too grand learning about history for me has been a way of kind of understanding how the world works that is my worldview and I think if you have an idea of how things have been shaped in the past you have an idea of how things can change you have an idea of how quite often things are the result of folly and fumbling yeah. and you know when you're little you can look around and you think oh everything's here and you see these grand buildings and you see people wearing suits and you think oh god everyone knows what they're doing and the lessons of history really are that no one has known what they're doing so that's how I see history really very very broadly is that you see all this kind of chaos out there and, and where we are now is at just some point in that that for me is quite a liberating way to look at the world because things change all the time. Yeah. And there's no kind of history that's ever not got a political viewpoint, is it? Every historian, mm. whether they're overt about it or not, or they don't even notice it, mm. is coming from a political standpoint. Absolutely. 
I think that's right. I think the idea of being completely dispassionate, this idea of, I don't know, telling it how it really was or whatever, this sort of German objectivity which uh, (laughs) was sort of predominated in the 19th century, I think we are away from that now a little bit because we understand that, well, to really engage people in history, you need to tell stories, you need to use narrative. And as soon as you start using that, well, things are excluded, things are included. By telling a story, you've got a start point, you've got an end point you are making decisions all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Who am I going to interview when I'm standing on the corner talking to people waiting after the riot or something? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in terms of the subject matter, in terms of who I speak to, it's not that I want a big chorus of people that I just agree with. In fact, (laughs) lots of people have said things that, that I don't agree with or have shocked me or surprised me. But so long as I feel that people are coming at it from a, you know, they've got an expertise and they've got a, a sense of, real interest in what they're talking about that's fine that's all grist to the mill that can all go in there yeah 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 bristol's history of course it's an interesting city to live in because of course you can't look at it without looking at slavery and that's the white slavery of the pre-transatlantic slave trade and then the transatlantic slave trade which is just horrific and then the fact that even post-slave trade your sugar merchants your tobacco merchants are still making money from slavery even if they don't have slaves themselves and we're a wealthy city and we're a city with a lot of exploitation of the poor and a lot of not really caring about the poor my history degree focused on things like victorian politics and you get the stage where a city that's come up through the industrial revolution often has a lot of people who have maybe misguided ideas about helping you know civil benefactory but we don't have the big victorian town spaces in the way that a birmingham or a manchester or a leeds Mm. does we're not hiding our past in the way that glasgow as a corporate identity does but we're not quite liverpool where you have a memorial to slavery a memorial Mm. to the chinese sailors who were just randomly deported Mm. after the second world war that makes bristol's history quite interesting i think but i also get the feeling that we're in a place where people are really wanting to talk about it yeah i would completely agree and i think you get some very interesting responses when these subjects come up when the issue of slavery comes up when the issue of how we market how we have marked it in the past issues of apologies things like this some people very quick to say well it's useless to apologize or oh we can't be changing the names of things if we start there where does it stop (laughs) it's interesting that people can feel quite strongly about that oh obviously you can't do anything about it which immediately sort of raises something yeah is it that obvious that we can't do something about at bristol's just changed its name from at bristol to we the curious and no one blinks yeah um Cabot Circus is an area, I mean, they changed their name you know, when they were building it. Mm. They tried to call it the Merchant's Quarter and changed the name because of the terrible yes. things. Places change their names all the time. Where I live on North Street, a little small garden was renamed from the nursery, which had been historically to North Street Green, and no mm. one blinks. But change happens. You know, yes. a, a marathon bar is now a Snickers. You yes. know. With Bristol, you could also say that the attitude towards its slaving past it's tied in with maybe conceptions about, say, British people's attitude more generally to things like the empire. You know, yeah. this idea that we benefited hugely from exploitation of peoples that we invaded and then systematically exploited. And I think lots of people agree with that as being more or less a fact of the past. Some people 
don't buy into that picture or they say if you're talking about say the wealth of Bristol or the wealth mm. of, of Britain for some people their yeah. lives are not one of wealth yeah. are they and that can seem to be a disjunction and there. at Bristol we've got the, the biggest gap between the rich and the poor we don't have the most deprived areas but apart from London out of all the other core cities we've got the biggest gap between yeah. the haves and the haves not in the city so I can see why some people are like well where is this wealth it's not touching us yeah absolutely. but that's but I think it's still, you know, people who lived in Hartcliffe and worked in a tobacco factory, well, why were they working in tobacco factories, mm. for example? Mm. There's a lot to be proud of as well, I yeah. think, that, like, I, it's not all misery about No, that. no, no, for sure. And, and I think this is maybe a, a thing that, again, what am I trying to encourage when I'm talking about historical engagement with this? I'm not saying changing the names of everything and anyone who might be potentially offended by you know, a, a link to someone in the past who engaged in certain activities, say, that that's the way to go. I think what we need to do is really have a, a nuanced conversation about this. And there are signs that we are moving in that direction. But you need to tease out what is happening, I think, because, OK, an apology might not do anything, say, on a personal level. My great-grandfather slighted your great-grandfather. It doesn't make sense for me to apologise about that because, as an individual... I'm not morally culpable, and I think most people would understand that. When you get to the level of institutions, say, well, institutions exist within law to have a continuity throughout time. So if you owe money to Coca-Cola uh, Incorporated or, or the other way around, that will be a, a debt that stands throughout, despite the fact of the staff at Coca-Cola changing or the CEO changing. And the same could be said maybe for big institutions within the city, things like Bristol City Council or yeah. the Society of Merchant Venturers. These are institutions which do reach back in history. I also think the idea of an apology doesn't change anything or kind of bringing stuff up from the past doesn't change anything. Well, it doesn't change anything in the past. But that's not what is at issue. Yeah. What's at issue is what changes in the present and the future. And actually, something like an apology, what you're doing there, you're not changing the past. What you are saying is that now and going forward, we're signalling that we feel this way about yeah. the past. And that, that's not for all time. You can't make a statement for all time. You can never put up a statue or name a building and be sure that in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, that it will remain there and people will feel the same way about it. You can't be. The reaction to that, people think, oh, you know, well, for, for God's sake, why not? That's just it. Our attitudes change. Our moral climate changes. Look around in terms of the news. The moral climate has changed today compared to the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really has. And it's perfectly possible that... 50, 100 years from now, if this podcast survives somewhere, they might be saying, oh, well, you, you know, who was this guy, uh, Tom Brothwell? Oh, yeah, but he was a meat eater. You know, I'm not veggie. I'm trying to eat a bit less meat now. But it, that's it. Might be seen as morally repugnant. People don't like to think of those moral changes happening. We like to think of ourselves being a sort of moral apex. Yes. And we should change. I and mean, we should change yeah. our views. And we should evolve. Absolutely. Just to go back to a point you said about maybe some of the Victorian reformers and you look at their attitudes, say, to what they were doing with workhouses or the kind of education that they were doing. And it seems even the kind of improvements that they were making seem 
ludicrous to us now yeah. because they're so paternalistic they're yeah. so oh well you know what the poor need is this and when we look at it like that what we're doing is we're understanding that we're now in a, a morally different position now i would want to say that we have morally improved i would want to say that i'm not a moral relativist i don't just think that each society has its own values and they change over time and in the past they were slave owners and that was fine for them and now yeah, we're yeah, not yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but that's a personal view but that's because i like to think of things getting better and, and i like to think that really we're as a species a human species we're becoming more empathetic in terms of what we care about and we're working towards a future where we do care more about not just people of from different backgrounds to us but maybe how we treat animals say mm. all, all these kind of things yeah that's a personal view i suppose yeah yeah but i mean i guess also history reverberates doesn't it so yeah there aren't people who are slaves or who even grandparents were slaves but there's people who were stolen from Africa and taken to the West Indies and then whose descendants came over as part of the Windrush generation and faced mm. a lot of racism yeah and part of that is still echoing down Absolutely. or there's you know or maybe you've come from a part of Africa which was completely destabilized by the British yeah. so I think there are some issues that are still reverberating so having a memorial for example mm. like it's Bordeaux that has this incredible yeah. memorial to slavery on its quayside is something that at least we can say yeah we see it we're not trying to hide it like you know the statue of Edward Colston on the center yeah. Colston Hall We've definitely memorialised the wrong side, I think. Yeah, I would agree. And with Colston, he was trading in slaves at a time when it was legal. Mm. Now, people can say, oh, well, you know, so what's the problem here? Well, it's not about demonising this particular individual. You can say what he was doing was legal, but yes, but not everyone was doing it. Exactly, some people and chose yeah, not to. Yeah, and he made a moral uh, choice in doing that. There's moral choices associated with everything it's not just about being within the the law or not within yeah. the law but it's not about excessive demonization of colston as a figure it is a question about how much you want to associate him with say the colston hall prides itself as being the cultural center of yeah. the city and it's also worth bearing in mind sometimes people can get up in arms and say well it's been like that throughout my life and blah 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 it is worth bearing in mind what kind of signals lionising someone like Colston sends out to people who are not white Bristolians who have lived here or that. You, you know, that yeah. that's about being empathetic. You know, yeah. what kind of message does it send? Are there better people that we could name things after? A recent podcast, I spoke to Jane Duffus, who has written this book about the women who built yeah. Bristol. And it's this amazing compendium of 250 women that is a sort of collective biography of people throughout the last um, millennia really in, in Bristol and there are so many amazing stories in there and they're just not as well known because people didn't care so much about what women did in the past mm. and what's wrong with saying now we're going to redress that you yeah, know yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that the past is always about the search for heroes and that we need to bring down Colston and replace it with someone else but I think having a a discussion about these things it shows that we're moving towards a place where well as you say historical understanding and our attitudes to history are also tied up with what we think in the present like mm. it is unavoidable and you mentioned that there the, the the Windrush community so coming after the second world war Caribbean migration to Bristol there was a colour bar there's a reason that the black community in Bristol is based where it is because they weren't allowed to live yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. And there's still massive discrepancies, like you say, in terms of educational achievement, mm. in terms of pay, 
So Bristol has, I think it's unique amongst large cities in the UK in the in terms of its minority population, has a larger black than Asian population. Mm. And people will say, oh, okay, well, so Bristol's known for having this vibrant black community and then a, a black community which mixed with elements of the white community. You go back to the 80s and you've got sort of street art culture yeah. and trip hop and things like that. You can all see it's this big sort of melting pot. And people, you know, friends who visit will say, oh, so is there a connection here with maybe a sort of ghettoized area and slavery? And my response to the historian, first of all, is to say, oh, no, well, no, slavery happened before, and actually there weren't slaves in Bristol. It was the ships here, and part of the, the way that trade carried on for so long is they weren't seeing the worst excesses yeah. of slavery here. And the, the Caribbean migration happened after the Second World War. But actually there is a link. There actually is <laughs> yeah. a link. That's the, the point there. And that is a link in people's attitudes. And it's not a point of saying, oh, okay, well, we Bristolians need to face up to the truth and understand that we're all secretly racist at heart because that's the way the city's built and that's how the wealth was acquired. It's not about that. It is just about, I suppose, acknowledging what happened and how things were done. As you're saying, that attitudes have changed a lot since the 1980s. The Bristol Post article that you sent me with the editorial saying about, you know, this faces of evil and they've apologised for that shows an engagement. It shows a willingness to engage with, as I say, by doing something like that, what you're doing, you're not changing the past, you're signifying that a change has happened in the present. Yeah. yeah. The Bristol Post, for people who don't know, have started a big conversation with Bristol Post, Eugene Radio, which is based in St Paul's. And the Bristol Old Vic, which is just coming out of yet another renovation and is seen as a very, very, very white, very, very, very upper class, very, very, you know, cultural boundaries. And it's come off the back of, I think it was a Runnymede Trust article that said that Bristol has some of the biggest cultural divide. We're one of the most divided cities in terms of, you know, everyone jokes that people from Hartcliffe and Noel West don't come further north than Asda Bedminster. But there's also some truth in that because they're also not welcome. Yeah. Or a lot of our stuff is around money. You know, the Harbour Festival is around spending money. Yeah. Taking Queen's Square to have the food teepees. Yeah. Is about coming in if you've got money. Yeah. In ways that I think other cities are a little bit slightly better at. Yeah. I think that's right. Bristol's interesting and it has this identity. People like the idea of being Bristolian. People associate with the idea of, of the city. But, Foodie culture, massive attack, hot air balloons, yeah. sitting outside the Feeney in the summer drinking beer, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah, absolutely. All of those things. And yet, as you say, certainly in recent years, well, gentrification is, is posing lots of, of questions about yeah. who the city is for and yeah. who the, the spaces in the centre of the city are for. Like you say, if to engage in civic culture, you need to go along and purchase your ticket to... You know, grill stock and go around and, and it, you're excluding people yeah. by doing that aren't you you are excluding people Bristol has been historically very very good at cultivating a sense of civic pride mm. it really has been you could argue that it's done that despite not really engaging people very much I mean one of the recent podcasts I spoke to Steve Paul who's an academic at Yui, and he was talking about in, in Georgian times you know that there's this idea about what it means to be a Bristolian because it's seen as this prestigious city but actually we've been good at cultivating that idea but not very good at spreading the wealth yeah. and you can argue that that absolutely continues today yeah, totally I mean, totally <laughs> yeah you grew up going to school in Bristol yeah has doing this podcast changed your idea of the city was there any history that surprised you that you've learned through this Lots of things. I'm no means an expert on the history of Bristol. And hopefully part of the interest in the podcast is that I'm 
learning. I, yeah. I talked about trying to be honest in the podcast that I don't set myself up as an authority. I set myself up as someone who's interested in going on these journeys and talking to people and trying to understand and, and, and put things together. I would say what has surprised me, lots of stories that I didn't know about. So I didn't really know very much about Caribbean migration to Bristol and actually looking into that was very useful. I spoke to Madge Dresser who wrote a book about women in the city. Yeah. That's a book written from, I guess, a feminist perspective, a sort of recorrection of looking back and saying there's been systematic exclusion yeah. of women in and what their contribution was to the city. And so lots of stuff that I'm learning on that level. In terms of, I don't know, my feeling as growing up and being a Bristolian, whether I felt like a, a Bristolian growing up, I don't know. I think it's only when you go away. When I went away to university, I remember these experiences in Freshers' Week, going around and having those conversations with people and saying, oh, you know, nice to meet you, like, where are you from? And people would normally say, either I'm from London, or they'd say, I'm from, and then they'd insert, like, some small place. Yeah. And they'd say, oh, and it's rubbish. And then I would say, oh, I'm from Bristol. And then I, for the first time, would think about it. And actually, I realised that I didn't think it was rubbish. I was yeah. like, I'm from Bristol. And actually, it's, it's quite good. These are the good things about it. Speaking to friends of mine from school who, you know, travelled to different places and went away to study, that's not an uncommon experience. Mm. So, yeah, I feel I have a connection to the city and a, a kind of love for the city but it's I don't know I suppose there's a love in or an interest in trying to find out things about the city and work out what's going on and I suppose some of the really interesting things I found out in the podcast are linked really to present day work this is yeah. it so it's like discovering the stuff that the Bristol Radical History Group has done discovering there's a community theatre in Bedminster called ACTA oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're brilliant, yeah. right? They do work with local and non-professional actors and they research and then they write their own plays based around local issues yeah. or things like that. That's an amazing idea. That's engaging people in history. It's happening now. I think that's the, the thing that gets me enthused about history is not so much the idea of discovering something in an archive somewhere. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe there's that element of discovering something in an archive or looking at something in the past, but then it's about how do you bring it to today? I spoke to ACH Smith, who's this great writer, lives nearby here. Lots of his plays recently have been about, he did up the feeder down the mouth, but he's done ones more recently, all about history of Bristol. And it's this engagement here. He's getting people along to these plays that talk about the docks. And all of a sudden, you've kind of got this light shone back into the past where... Oh, right, the, the, the docking in Bristol and the people who worked in these jobs, that all faded out in the 70s. But actually, all of a sudden, you've got, oh, wait, wasn't it interesting that we used to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and as far as I understand, the initial impulse for your podcast was this idea of engaging with the water, engaging yeah. with the Avon. The city used to be based around the water in such a fundamental way. Yeah. And actually... In lots of ways, that's gone. It's interesting yeah. to think about that, though. Yes. And, it's and it nearly, we nearly lost the floating harbour, well, which is one of my favourite Bristol stories. Yeah. In the 80s, they wanted to concrete over it and turn it into yeah. a ring road. I just... That's unbelievable, isn't it? And it was so close to happening. Yeah, so close. I, yeah. I spoke to a guy who was at work from Bristol Planning who told me the story about that from my podcast. And it's like, you're like, yeah. oh my goodness, how close we came. Yeah. So not having the harbour's integral to the story that Bristol tells about itself. Absolutely. But yeah, we nearly lost mm. it. And on your most recent podcast, I thought something that came up was very interesting was this idea of the river being a commons for, mm. for Bristol. But actually it's a commons that 
people don't really have access to because I, I wouldn't know how to go about going down and getting a little boat or whatever, yeah. things like that. Anything like that, which suddenly makes you think, oh, actually, this is how it used to be. I think that's it. If you can gain that sort of historical perspective or to think that things weren't always quite like this, yeah. this is, I think, why talk about that sense of like liberation is then you understand that okay well it was different before and it's now like this and it could be different again in the future yeah, yeah. you talk about brexit a lot in your podcast and i'm absolutely <laughs> yeah. terrified about brexit part of yeah. bristol's idea of bristol it is our foodie stuff that often comes from people who aren't well british who are european are european friends and family yeah. like just well, my wife's Portuguese, and uh, Bristol's twinned with Porto. We're like often in Porto. <laughs> and Bristol has historic links with Porto, going back to you know, the fact that we imported loads of port, and port was seen as being this kind of patriotic drink. So when we were yeah. at war with France, we'd drink lots of port. Because Rather it was, than wine, yeah. yeah. And yes, I don't know. I think Bristol, was, as a port city, has always been an excellent marketplace for ideas. I think Bristolians like to think of themselves as being progressive or at least open to ideas and I think you do see that more in places where historically there have been people coming and going so not just from Ireland but from the continent and from other places and yeah with Brexit that does pose a question as to what that means to Bristolians you know if, if we have a different relation to Europe Bristol's wealth and quite a lot of its civic identity was founded on this idea of it being for a long time the second city to London and a place that looked outwards specifically to Europe and also, of course, transatlantically. And so I think in terms of the identity of the city, things like that really do pose questions. Well, I mean, look at the SS Great Britain. When you look at our trademarks, you walk around the harbour and you have, well, there's the cranes, there's the replication of the Matthew, one of the many first ships to cross the Atlantic. (laughs) There's the SS Great Britain, which was all about taking people, you know, to start their new life in Australia or start their new life in America or whatever. Even if you cut the slave trade out of it, and only focus on the positives in in heavily inverted commas, it's still an international town. The International Balloon Fiesta is the kind of symbol of Bristol with the insane number of balloons swarming over the city on a sunny day. You know, that's that's by nature international. Mm, Absolutely. I should say I don't make a point of talking about Brexit in the podcast. Maybe it's something that has come up on a a few occasions I, don't th- I think it's impossible yeah. not to talk about it mm. as an analogy and as a thing to think about for the future as part of looking at history is also about looking at how what we're doing now is going to impact on the future absolutely I think one of the things that I was surprised by by your podcast which I hadn't thought about was when you were talking to Derek Robinson the author and he was talking about how when he was growing up in Bristol how hard it was to get places yes. because there was no intercity train line and there was no motorway and that blew my mind it's an hour and 45 minutes to get to London by train We've got the airport, where I live in Bedminster, you're at the airport in 12 minutes by bus, and then you're anywhere in the world, you know? We're very definitely a place where the motorways and the railway lines meet, a crossing point of transportation. So the idea of Bristol being far away from everywhere was really... Yeah. And that's within people's lifetimes. Absolutely, yeah. You're right, it's a fascinating thing to think about, because that's it. It would also change the way it's perceived now, or how many people are say coming from London Bristol as being a say a destination like Brighton of yeah. people moving out of the city yeah. and, and going somewhere where it's a bit more relaxed pace of life or things like that actually if Bristol was cut off people wouldn't consider those things would yeah. they my podcast is nominally about the water in Bristol can you tell us as a history person 
any interesting history factoids that we should know about the water? Because I guess people know that Bristol was built because there was a bridge. Yes, well, I don't know if I'm the best repository of factoids for the, the water. My understanding of Bristol, people know about it being Brigstow, the place by yeah. the bridge. The site of Bristol Bridge at the minute is was the original founding point for the city. It's my understanding, a sort of yeah. confluence of the Froome and the Avon. Yeah, and the nearest place to the coast that they could build a bridge because yeah. with the gorge and with what would have been very marshy sands. Absolutely. It, it was the first place that was geographically possible. And being built in... I think the earliest recordings of there being a settlement there are around 950, around 1,000. Mm. And then very quickly it becomes a town of note, it's my understanding. What, of course, you have there is it's built where it is because of the links, as you say, and it, because it, it becomes an important place where people are meeting, where routes are crossing and people are meeting up to exchange goods. And that's how the city initially grows. Of course, when you go much further down the line, the fact that it's so far up from the mouth of the Avon becomes a massive problem yeah. for Bristol. As shipping demands become more complex, the city it begins to lose out, and that's why yeah. you get the decline of the city. Really from Horseshoe Bend being bonkers, like mm. Horseshoe Bend on the river, where ships just couldn't go down it, and the ridiculous tides. Well, absolutely, and I think also part of the original founding of the city there is it is defendable because yeah. of being that far up. It means that you can't easily be attacked. Well, yeah. okay, part of the flip side of not being easily attacked is it's hard to get up. Yeah, yeah. When I talked to Professor Peter Fleming about medieval Bristol, he said Bristol was never taken. It's a time when all the other coastal cities really suffered. Yes. Bristol was really well fortified and it yeah. wasn't until the um, Civil War that it yeah. kind of got... That it sucked into conflict. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's my understanding too. The other thing I... Well, in terms of the water, and remember talking about the riots in the 1790s, mm. which was a, a massacre in Bristol. You know, you had people being shot. But this idea that, similar to London Bridge actually, that what happened, because it was such an important point, that you had these shops built up and built yeah. up and built up, and actually it being an incredibly, in terms of, if you're talking about the 18th century and before, you're talking about very little in terms of planning laws, yeah. health and safety completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, one, a very dangerous place to cross because people coming with, say, horse and cart one way could force people off and into yeah. the river below. Also in terms of incredible sewage and, and pollution. To think of that being the heart of the city there, it does put you back in time as to what it might have been like then. And I don't know, I think also in listening to, as I said, to your most recent podcast, when this idea of the water being a kind of commons area was brought up, it did make me think that maybe that has been lost a little bit in Bristol now, or the way that we engage with the water and the Avon is maybe in a bit more of a packaged way with the harbour festivals, mm. and it's, okay, well, every now and then we're reminded that this was a, a great maritime city. I think the sort of the magic of the Avon for me was always I went to school in Bristol and I remember coming in in the mornings and Brunel Way when the, the bridge swings into view yeah and okay admittedly this is more about the bridge than it is about the gorge or the Avon but genuinely being a, a small child and genuinely pondering about how that could be built I didn't understand how you could do it yeah. without building something up from the middle yeah yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. there is something magical about the bridge in that sense and that is, for me, I think, I don't know, I suppose when I think of the Avon and the water in Bristol, it's the classic image of Bristol, isn't yeah. it? You know, yeah. It's the gorge and that coming to mind. Yeah. I don't know if this is really a, a factoid about Bristol, but I did speak to someone 
who wrote some children's books about the giants in, yeah. in Bristol. That was completely new to me, the idea that the gorge had been founded by these, these giants. <laughs> Gorham and... Uh, yeah. I can Gorham, never remember Gorham's, Gorham's brother. <laughs> well, Geiston or Vincent, I think. Right. It's, it's been yeah. characterised differently. I mean, there are loads of different stories about yeah. them. And let's be honest, they're all kind of <laughs> mythological yeah, stories yeah, yeah. anyway. But that idea of them chucking a pickaxe to one another and I think one kills the other one and yeah. then in his grief he digs the, the gorge or something. You know, yeah. it's these kind of stories. We're not that far from the downs now. You go up and like, it is amazing to have. It's the price of being, a, I suppose, a hilly city. It's, yeah. it's difficult to cycle around, but you go up to the, the, the top there and actually you don't have those kind of views or that kind of scenery in lots of other places yeah. in, in the country. Yeah. And the centre of the city being nowhere near the centre of the conurbation. Yeah. When you're standing in the centre of the city, you can see the green of Dundry if you look south yes. yeah. by, the, by the watershed. And if you walk down the harbour, you can see the green of Ashton Court. Yeah. If you're in the centre of the city, being out of the city into the countryside is just literally a matter of a couple of kilometres. Absolutely. Bonkers. It's completely ludicrous. Like if I was building this when I used to play Civilization, <laughs> I'd never build it like that. Yeah. But, but it's awesome. Absolutely. The other thing I find, and I don't know if you find this as well, because you're such a sort of devotee of the water and the river, you might not have this problem. But because of the way the city was historically built around the river, I still find myself having a bad sense of direction around a river yeah. because stuff doesn't make sense. <laughs> and, a, and actually, compared to the other city I know really well is Oxford. That's a smaller city. But actually, it's much more easy to, in my head, get a sort of like grid system for it or, you know, it's roads and it, things sort of fit in and they make sense. Whereas because construction followed the river in that way, I still find myself, you know, you know the Arnold Feeney and you're trying to get to, you know, some other bit and you're always thinking, right, what is the best way to do it? or what? And the there's so points? few crossing points. Yes, I think, well, yeah, it. living in Bedminster, you, yeah. you have to learn it really soon because otherwise, but, you know, if you take out one bridge, and one of my favourite things about Bristol is the Plimsoll Swing Bridge yeah. where in rush hour traffic just swing and they'll be backs up all the way down the A road and everything yeah. will be disastrous it'll be one little tiny piddly pleasure craft. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like, it's great fun when you're seeing it, but, you know, if I'm ever going to an interview or something really important I'm always going to be caught by the Prince mm. Street Swing Bridge because it's just fact of life yeah, that absolutely. you can't you know give yourself 15 minutes extra what do you think about that Bruno Way and that whole area because to be honest when I talk about when the bridge swings into view as you come in from the south I am also then talking about coming in on a, in yeah. a car on a big road and actually it has struck me that that area it is a beautiful sight but it's not really that open to cyclists and pedestrians yeah. or not yeah. you know they're very much kept yeah. away where is this big... well I did a podcast on this <laughs> I spoke to um, a landscape architect Wendy Tippett who told me about that whole area was landscaped by this really famous landscape architect Sylvia Crow and it was actually designed, and this is going to make you laugh, as a utopian paradise. Oh, really? Because wow. when they built it in the 70s, they actually designed things to keep cyclists and pedestrians separate. It's still incredibly confusing because the area goes from the north in Hot Wells, yeah. and it goes right down to south by Ashton Gate School, where there's the kind of really impossible roundabouts where you can head off to Western Supermare, or you can head to Taunton, or you can yeah. head up the other side of the gorge up there. And all of that's been specifically landscaped. So when you talk about coming, sweeping around and seeing the view, there's all sorts of things on the land that have been deliberately uh, added to make you have that. But it was all built with very specific reasons. And there used to be, as you come across the bridge, and you can either turn right to get to town, or you can turn left to go up the portway, there was a giant fountain 
between the roads, there was a maritime-themed playground. And because it was built in the 60s, and it was built before people really understood the impact of cars, at the time, there was no motorway bridge. So this was the way that if you were coming down from the north and you wanted to go down to Cornwall and Devon, you had to come. Or if you're coming from the south and you're wanting to go across to Wales or anywhere, that was the first crossing point. Right. I would recommend everyone to listen to my podcast, of course. But that whole space was built as a utopian vision, seen as making Bristol one of the most futuristic cities, landscaped with very specific meanings to try and build community in. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's broken. And And it's it's broken and it hasn't worked. Yeah. It's it's so interesting how uh, not long ago a vision of what the ideal would be. Yeah, but car culture changed so fast that they weren't prepared for it. So, you know, this beautiful playground that was all maritime themed was gone within 10 years. The markets that they were going to have on the Hotwell side were gone, you know? Because you just needed to cope with traffic flow and and that's it. It, And it feels like, at the minute anyway, sort of like an amazing potential in terms of what you can see. But, But also you have to kind of look into okay it failed could it ever have succeeded given the really complicated geography of trying to combine everything in there and having to cross the harbour and having to cross the river at the same time like you have to look at it I think in the context of this is how it failed but these are the things that we're never gonna yes you're never going to have a simple road it's like they've redone the centre recently and one of the problems they did redoing the centre was it got really delayed because apparently the company doing it didn't understand the froom was underneath the centre and and so that turns out it's hard to build roads over the top of rivers yeah Yeah, I don't even know what my point is there well I suppose that it's very hard to get these things right your podcast do you have like a list of ideas of where you want to go in the future I suppose I've got a list of topics and people send in potential topics and that's been a really positive aspect actually is the way people have engaged do you enjoy that absolutely enjoy it and i don't know this is it quite often when i'm speaking to people in an interview they'll say oh have you spoken to so-and-so or so-and-so it's a really good way of getting in touch with people and and understanding who's interested in what and not if people are interested in things they're prepared to talk about it but no i do encourage that in terms of what i want to do in the future i've got a list of topics that might be fruitful sometimes things pop up or crop up here and there and uh, I do need good guests on it that's the way of doing it the quality of the shows I think will often be related to like that's it you you need someone who's passionate about the subject can speak about it you know they're not just an expert but they clearly care about it but yeah there's so many I think when I started I kind of thought oh I'll do the first one on the suspension bridge and then I made a list of you know 10 or whatever and and, and then I thought oh soon enough all of the history will be exhausted and now I after having done it for a couple of years I feel that I could write 200 things now yeah and by the time I had done a hundred of them, there'd be a bigger list. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. really is. There's so much out there to potentially talk about. But that's it. It's not about um, being comprehensive. It's about engaging, speaking to interesting people, and meeting people who are interested in it. Well, not just the city, but I suppose interested in. I don't know exploring what's around them, in meeting other people who are interested in exploring these things. Because, as I've said that history for me it's not a kind of introspective thing about looking back at the past and you know something that's dead and cold there yeah it's about engaging with the things which formed our present thinking and our present world and 
looking out to sort of future horizons. That's really exciting. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> if people want to listen to your podcast, where do they find it? So you can find it at soundcloud.com forward slash Bristol History Podcast. Mm -hmm. It's also available on iTunes. So if you just search for Bristol History Podcast, it will pop up there. And that's the best way of finding out. There's a Facebook page as well, the same thing if you were to go onto Facebook and put in Bristol History Podcast, that would pop up. And if you want to send me an email with any suggestions about future topics, bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com, best way of getting in touch. Perfect. I totally recommend it. I totally recommend the podcast. It's a really fun, fascinating glimpse into someone else's interests. And I love it. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'll put links to things we talked about and including to some of the specific podcasts I loved on my site, avonstories.com. And you can also find my podcasts on Avon Stories on iTunes and the RSS is also on my website. If you want to follow my day-to-day -day adventures around the Avon and water in Bristol, I'm at avon underscore stories on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening and come back soon.